welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the acutely young, achingly hip, and chronically lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Coming off a long weekend, feeling fresh and ready to go. <laughs> oh, God, Ashley, no. <laughs> Poor Ashley's a little sick today. I, I need to not laugh because then I just sound like a distressed baby seal. Uh, <laughs> that was sure, let's go with that. <laughs> really specific. Oh, man. Yeah, so feeling a little bit um, croaky. I know it will help, though. <laughs> what? Ask me what's on tap. What's on tap? We are drinking whiskey this week, which is, of course, <laughs> known exactly to cure all ales. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, our guest this week, who Olga will tell you about in a second, requested whiskey, and so that's what we've got on tap. Yeah. Some, so some cheers. good wild turkey. Yep. Awesome. Cheers. cheers. I, I was going to say, I should have said I sound like a wild turkey. That would have made more sense, but went with baby You're seal. You're reaching for Zach's, <laughs> Zach jokes now. Oh, Lord. <laughs> wow. That's how you know she's sick. <laughs> Feeling delirious. So who are we talking to, Olga? This week, we're super excited to be chatting with Vincent Cunningham. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and he's a pretty prolific writer. One day he'll write about the Knicks. The next day he'll write about Aretha Franklin or Venezuela. And one topic he returns to often is Christianity. Yeah. And last month, he wrote an article for The New Yorker titled, How the Idea of Hell Shaped the Way We Think. So... We sort of get into that. He reviews a new book that's out from Penguin Press about sort of the Western canon of hell and its history and how it, and Vincent wrote about how it shapes sort of modern day culture and politics. And he drops Von Balthasar and Dorothy Day and all these people that the New Yorker might not always uh, get to see. So it's an awesome conversation and we are psyched to share it with you. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? So this week is the Vatican Summit on the Protection of Minors, and it will take place on from February 21st to February 24th. Um, and we've talked about this summit in previous episodes, and I know many are wondering just what will come out of this meeting. And while we can't exactly predict just what the bishops from all around the world are going to talk about— um, we are hopeful that a lot that this kind of helps the church to move forward in the right direction. Yeah. So on Monday, the Vatican announced that they were going to they have a new website dedicated just to this summit um, and they're going to live stream all of the keynote speeches and interventions at the meeting from Pope Francis, which is a level of transparency. I think that is, you know, relatively new for the Vatican and uh, something that a lot of people have been calling for. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Listeners uh, to this podcast can follow what's happening at the summit at pbc2019.org. And also, we're going to have several of our colleagues from America there, including Inside the Vatican's Colleen Dully, our national correspondent, Michael O'Loughlin, and our Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell. So you can follow along all of that coverage. You can follow them on Twitter, but also at www.americamagazine.org slash Vatican-abuse-summit. What's our next story, Zach? So... Last week, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, the former Archbishop of Washington, was laicized by Pope Francis. What does that mean, Zach? What does it mean to be laicized? So laicization means that he is no longer permitted to act as a priest. And this also means that the church is no longer responsible for caring for him in any type of financial way, correct? Right. And so this is a step beyond what had happened uh, this past summer when uh then Archbishop McCarrick was removed from public ministry so he could no longer go out in public as a priest. Um, and he was his 
title as a cardinal was removed. But now um, this is basically the church cutting ties with him. He can no longer, you know, say mass, do marriage or baptisms. Um, and priests are usually, their pension comes through the church. And uh, it's kind of unclear what exactly is going to happen with McCarrick in terms of his housing and health care now that he is no longer a priest. Right. And this is typically used as a... Uh it's seen as a form of punishment, uh, which the Vatican has used to prosecute priests um, and now bishops, especially accused of abuse. Um, and between 2004 and 2014, there were 848 priests laicized. And I was wondering, what did you guys, I, because this was sort of meant to be a big move from the Vatican ahead of this week's summit. Um, right. I was wondering, what did you guys think of this? Honestly, I, I saw this and I thought, this is a really welcome step. I know this is going to mean a lot to survivors and people who have been following this since the story broke last summer. But I keep asking myself, why couldn't they have done this sooner? Why did it take almost, I don't know, it's six to eight months for us to arrive at this step? Yeah, I'm finding myself, I don't, just sort of like underwhelmed or like, I, I, and I haven't really probed these feelings any deeper, but I, I know that it's meant to be a, a huge symbol or a signal um, from Rome that they're caring about this. But I'm I'm anxiously waiting to see what other steps that are going to be taken. So, yeah. So I guess the way I see it is is starting from the survivor's perspective. If this is what they want, then that is something we should take into consideration. But I think the way we talk about it is important. A lot of times uh, it's like talked about as if you're getting uh reduced to the lay state that as uh, that's another way of talking about laization as if being a priest is this high honor that's being removed because you didn't live up to the responsibilities um and so i don't I f- i'm uncomfortable with that like think, there's a clericalism involved here yeah that's, like it's a demotion to become a lay person yeah um, and also i think the one thing that was frustrating for a lot of people is that most of this process has not been super transparent and that is the one thing that I think a lot of Catholics and survivors had been calling for. Yeah. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law on February 14th legislation that gives the victims of childhood sexual abuse more time to seek criminal charges or file lawsuits against their abusers. Yeah, so victims right now have until the age of 55 to file civil lawsuits, and they have until the age of 28 to seek criminal charges. Um, and that's opposed to it was 23 under the old statute. Um, and it also creates this one year litigation window for victims to file lawsuits. The Catholic Church has fought against legislation like this in the past. They warned that having this kind of legislation could bankrupt any organization that serves children. And after a similar law was passed in California, Catholic diocese there paid $1.2 billion in legal settlements. So the argument there is that uh, because of the massive amount of fees and settlements and court fees they were going to have to pay, that would somehow harm recipients of other social services that they were doing. But the church did drop the their sort of opposition to this after uh, something else happened. Yeah, right, so actually. in New York, the church was against this legislation because originally it had targeted the Catholic Church specifically. It had created this window only to sue the Catholic Church. Um, but then the legislation was changed to apply to um, both public and private schools, which although they do not make the headlines as much as the Catholic Church, have a similar problem with sex abuse. What's our next story, Olga? 
So our next story is coming out of McAllen, Texas, where city commissioners have ordered Catholic charities of the Rio Grande Valley to vacate their central McAllen Respite Center, which has served as a temporary shelter for immigrants who crossed from Mexico into the United States once federal authorities released the immigrants from custody. And this shelter is under the leadership of Sister Norma Pimentel, who, uh, who has been praised by Pope Francis for her work with migrants. And we actually talked to Sister Norma about the work she does uh, on episode 82. The reasons why they wanted to close this respite center were super frustrating, uh, I think, to read about. They claim to support the mission of Sister Norma and the center, just not in their neighborhood. One resident was quoted as saying, we don't feel like these people are safe because we've seen some of these people that get off the buses walking up and down our streets. I don't know why they're allowed such freedom. I think that at any point something bad could happen and we're trying to stop it before it does. And Sister Norma spoke up to correct these narratives. This was at a meeting where this was voted on. Yeah. And Sister Norma works with the people who come to these centers every day. Um, And so she knows they are not criminals. They are people who have papers. She said they are afraid and tired from long journeys and they don't wander around the neighborhood. Um, And it's just you. there's nothing more unchristian or there are a few things less Christian than than saying no to the stranger who shows up at our door. Yeah, and and I think it's one thing to, it's well and good to say that you support caring for migrants and refugees in in theory, but then when the question is, uh, are these people welcome to become my neighbors? And you say no, Mm -hmm. that just contributes to the demonization um, that we hear rhetorically uh, from our politicians, from some journalists, from our family members and friends. It, when the rubber hits the road, if you're not willing to welcome them, then what's what's your advocacy worth? What's our next story, Ashley? So in Dublin, the churches are facing a decrease in donations coming into mass each week. So they have decided to trial contactless card machines uh, to collect donations. So contactless card machines, this is where you could take either your phone and use uh, sort of Apple Pay or Android or Apple wallet or some of like debit cards and credit cards have sort of like you just hold it up to a reader and it takes it without having to enter anything. And I thought this was super freaking cool. Yeah, you've been calling for something like this for a while. Oh, yeah, totally. Because, I mean, when the basket gets passed around in mass, I'm always like, daggone it, I never carry cash. Same, same. And I feel like that's probably a feel a sentiment that's shared by many millennials. I feel like we want to give back to our parishes, but there should be ways to make that easier. Right. And we actually, when we were uh, in Australia, we were in the uh, cathedral in Sydney and they totally had this already. I thought I was. Being yeah, it hand- was so cool. I thought I was being handed a spaceship. Uh, <laughs> it was the actual kind of looks like a Roomba. <laughs> yeah. The actual collection plate. You could use Apple Pay on right then and there for 10 bucks. It was just like you tapped your phone or your credit card and you and you donated ten dollars right there on the spot, which I thought was. And it completely shamed you into donating when you wouldn't have otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, I've really been calling for this. I got to support this now that it's happening. But. I think it, this is exciting for more than a couple reasons. Just not, It's not just that they're, you know, catering to millennials, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, this is also protection against fraud. Uh, a lot of people, I don't think, are aware of this, but a ton of money gets stolen from churches across the United States because of the way we collect money. Yeah, it, and it might not be a rampant problem. You yeah. should still feel like you yeah. can donate to your parish safely, probably. Correct. But there, it, it just is safer, right, when... It's an electronic transaction and yeah, there's a you ledger. Trace the money. Yep. You don't have to rely on one person collecting or it. One and... person or a couple people collecting yeah. it. And I think it shows a willingness, which we've talked about before, for churches to sort of like follow what's happening technologically as it relates to parish life. Correct. Yeah. Like I do green giving, which, you know, you can like sign up to give automatically every week. Um, 
But I, I do like feel like a jerk in church when like the basket comes around and I don't put anything in it. And, you know, I mean, there I'm conflicted because, you know, you're supposed to give while no one's watching. Yep. (laughs) What would Jesus say about that, Ashley? (laughs) I'm just saying the the cashless or the contactless card giving is a good compromise between green giving and. (laughs) And what? (laughs) And and virtue signaling. Joining us in studio today is Vincent Cunningham. He is a staff writer with The New Yorker, where he covers culture, art, and books. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited because I've been following you on Twitter and have been obsessed with you and your timeline. <laughs> so it feels like I'm meeting a celebrity in the studio right oh, now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> also, you've got this like per- perfect confluence of MBA... Yes. culture, religion thing going on that yeah. just like speaks to my soul. Yeah. Zach and I much. often are just like, we want to write about the Knicks or anything <laughs> in the NBA. Um, so the reason you're in studio here today is that you recently wrote this piece about hell and how it shapes the way that we think as a society. Um, so how old were you when you first learned what hell was and what were some of those first impressions? That's a great question. And I don't know. It's like you, there's certain ideas. Cause I, you know, I was in, Sunday school mm-hmm. right. before I can't even remember the first time that happened. So it's like, I it is certainly whenever I can think of myself having known of God, I can think of myself having known of hell. If that makes any sense, yeah. it's mm-hmm. like sort of um, one of my base assumptions, I guess. Which is you know a point of di- I, I've got a good friend who's an atheist, my buddy Tim, and one thing that we always talk about is that for me, Jesus is like. And so, and hell and everything else, right? Uh, all of these ideas are like organs to me. Without them, I feel strange. And mm-hmm. when I have trouble believing them, I feel off kilter. And he's like, well, to me, that would be a tumor. Like, it would be something, someone putting something in me that doesn't belong there, right? Mm-hmm. So, for anyway, for me, hell feels very, like, component among there, my other parts. Were there moments you remember where it was, like, used to scare you or that your the way you thought about it changed yeah. or was um, affected by um, events in your life? Yeah. I don't, I never know if it was used to scare me. I think most of the pastors and preachers and youth group leaders and whoever else that, you know, always tried to bring it in terms of a, uh, you know, helpfully, it's like, hey, you know, you might want to watch out. You know, Help, helpfully <laughs> afraid of this. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. They're, they're just, just, I mean, it's okay, but over there is that, you know, so, uh, um, and, I think whatever fear there was was mo- a little bit more. Inter- I mean, it's already a scary idea. Nobody really has to weaponize it. It's like nope. there it is, you know. And so you think about it. Um, but I've, I think from a young age, I, I, I did kind of have this idea that I didn't want to live my, uh, my life in faith like that, uh, oriented, you know, toward hell, just because it would. It, it seemed like not pious enough to me. It's like, well, if I love God only because there's this other thing that like right. happens if I don't, then that's not actually love. So like, to me, it always made sense to like mostly ignore it hmm. for that mm-hmm. reason. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. but Yeah, totally. I think even like for me growing up Catholic, that was something that I can relate to. I feel like my fiance grew up Pentecostal, mm-hmm. so he grew up with a very different relationship with the concept of hell. But for me, it was something that like, 
it existed, but you're not talking about it because you're talking about God. You're talking about your relationship with Jesus. And hell was not something that was discussed for me growing up until I started thinking about that in my 20s. Yeah. I think my first memory of hell is debating with my cousins at my grandma's house whether or not it was a bad word or whether we could say it. (laughs) And I just remember being like, no, it's I I see it written down in this thing in mass and no one's trying to stop me from reading it. Like, why? Why do I have to say heck? But, and I just I didn't understand it. So deep, young Zach. No, but I was, By uh, the way, that was my excuse for using ass because that was also in the Bible. That was a big thing for me. So I, I mean, I don't know. It's like a. So but, be our first explicit Jesuitical. No, I'm, I'm, I was wondering. I'm sorry. No, but I feel like uh, I, I feel like our Catholics focus a lot less on like the whether or not you're saved, like it, all at one mm-hmm. go. So there is less of a I don't know conversation about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm hell or heaven in terms of like it, well it's sort of like i i can do my best here but that's all i can do so right. i don't know what to if it's that has anything to do with it yeah well that was one of the it's funny you said you mentioned sort of like the saved model right because mm-hmm. like i grew up between those you mentioned the sort of the catholic and pentecost those are exactly the poles for me at a certain point like um i grew up and was baptized catholic church like i uh my dad was my parents were both Baptists, but mm-hmm. um, my dad was a church musician um, and eventually got a job uh, being the music director at a Catholic church and being a teacher, a music teacher at a Catholic school. And then eventually my mom started teaching there as well. So I was like in Catholic school and both my parents were there. So, you know, to speak of like semi divine, like, uh, always looking at you that kind yeah. of like <laughs> yeah. uh, you didn't need hell you had exactly like total surveillance and... yeah. yeah um uh and so that was my religious upbringing until i was nine years old at which point um, we moved back to new york and i don't think my mother especially ever felt like comfortably catholic like we went there because that's where my dad worked that's where we worshiped like whatever you know um but when we moved back we uh my mom and i shortly after my dad died joined a pentecostal church so but at the, at the same time, I still went to a, a Jesuit middle school. So I de- definitely had these two models. And it would sometimes I would like come back from church with this sort of like, number one, this like very fixed idea of salvation that's not necessarily Catholic. Like the right. sort of, um, this sort of salvation justification model versus the sort of lifelong discipleship that I associate with Catholicism. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, at this point in my life, much more comfortable with. Um and and there you know and the things of like there was no purgatory at church and there was at school and you know so I it, always kind of like jumping between those things and like trying to figure that stuff out was um, yeah you mentioned that you as you've gotten older you you meet fewer and fewer people that believe in all this stuff like the sure. hell purgatory I think heaven is still probably popular enough for a yeah. lot of people i think right? a lot of people think real. like your energy like a lot of people yeah. that i know are just like you know like you just like get onto a higher vibration like you know <laughs> or something i don't know if they would call it heaven but i think they've got like yeah no there's not even really like a new age model of like you were a bad person and so you're gonna get yours yeah in the no. afterlife right no so question for you do you believe in hell i i do yeah actually like never didn't it's but mm-hmm. it's like it's it's so funny like to me um re- religious life has always been i can always i've never had a problem reciting the creed mm-hmm. but i've always had a problem be like okay but what does that mean yeah so it's so. like i believe in hell because <laughs> i've been in parts of life that feel like hell and to me you know if i you know i, I like the idea that life as we can feel it and see it 
uh, is a mirror or an echo of the invisible things that we cannot hear or see, right? Like, so to me, I have no problem believing in that, that state, but it, it's precisely the question of like, okay, a place or a state, and right. what does it feel like? And which part of me is the part that is my soul? Which part of me is the immortal part anyway? Like, I have that question about the word soul. I feel like I have one. I don't know how to parse it from the rest of me, right? Like, all of those, um, all of these propositions in which I believe I still, you know, put under the spotlight, couldn't tell you. So, yeah, yeah. I do believe in hell. I just, I, I couldn't don't know draw what it. You, if you, you know, had exactly. to try to describe it, like, what, what do you... What do you think it is? Like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Well, I actually do like the uh, the sort of classical definition of the state of utter separation from God. You yeah. know? Uh, that, to me, is the part that I can understand. Um, having, at many points in my life, felt like I was experiencing it. Right? Um, a sort of separation from the love of being, you know, that uh, characterizes God. God for me, but what that feels like after you die, like, I don't know, you know? So I guess you wrote mm -hmm. this article on hell. I should back up a little bit because there's this new Penguin anthology on sort of our understanding of hell. Yeah. Right. Um, did you have any favorite depictions that that book either ha included or left out? They're all pretty fun in like the the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Very colorful. The worst sense, right? There's the sort of apocryphal um uh john's apocalypse where you, he kind of sees people emerging from this lake of fire and they've got these like uh they're up to different levels in the lake of fire based on how bad they were mm -hmm. i always i thought that was like funny i was like always seemed to me like the like sort of tan line version <laughs> of the gospel right um that that was that was just kind of like fun and of course dante um to speak of like this kind of like how do you how metaphorical how um, present is hell with us, that sort of struggle. I, I, I always like the beginning, uh, the, the first canto of, um, of Dante, because he, uh, he's walking through a wood in his life and feeling confused and feeling separated from God. And that path leads him directly into everything, you know, into the inferno that we know. And, I, and that seems to me, um, so evocative of how much of a mystery it is, right? It's like, yes, there's all this incredible physical description and the big red head of the devil and he's chewing on, like, uh, Brutus or whoever, you know? It's, like, very, like, um, if you're not there, it can be a little bit, like, comic. It can be, in, like, a great image. But it all starts with the person alone and sort of lost. Um, and that's why I just always thought that that was terrifying but also lovely in a way that it still speaks to whoever you know we all kind of go through that dark wood yeah and you you point out in your article I, I haven't read the penguin anthology but you point out that they don't include milton's uh satan character yeah. the character of satan from paradise lost which to me is just completely it shocks me because i think my fixation with the idea of hell and Satan came from reading Milton in college. And I yeah. had a whole semester where we only read Paradise Lost. And the last class we had, we spent seven hours just reading all of Paradise Lost, 25 of us in like my junior year. That's awesome. Um, and I remember thinking that, you know, you mentioned earlier that the state of being in hell is just being completely removed from God and from the light of heaven and God. And I think that that's something that Milton captures 
so beautifully in Paradise Lost. So yeah. I, I just can't believe that they would exclude. And I think just the character of Satan is just one of the best characters in all of literature. That's right, yeah. Um, so it surprises me that it's that he's not included in this. I think it was because this guy, Scott Bruce, it's a wonderful, mm-hmm. um, wonderful compilation. Anybody that, you know, is interested should definitely get it. Um, but my suspicion about that is that he was going for these very colorful descriptions, these very gru- gruesome descriptions. And... You don't necessarily get that in Paradise Lost. It's like um, Satan and all of the fallen angels go into hell. And it's like not, it's described, but not Mm -hmm. in these kind of like uh, gratuitous ways like in Dante. And it's like, and they just think like, okay, should we make a home in hell? Like, is it, should we experience this as bad or, or because we're bad, should this be good for us? They like have this like sort of philosophical discourse about the nature of hell vis-a-vis themselves. And then Satan like says, okay, this is a good conversation. And then he blazes the path from hell to earth um, in pursuit of Adam and Eve, right? And then he gets there and he has the great speech that I ended up, you know, putting in uh, in my piece about like, he has this realization that wherever he goes, now hell is with him. Mm-hmm. That it's like, Again, not just a place, but a state, right? He's there on earth. And uh, the beauty of the new creation sort of like singes him all the more, right? He feels like even more incongruent with the rest of creation. So it's like maybe it's because it's not as colorfully described, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I I, had, I definitely wish it were, were, there, were in there. What do you think we lose when we don't have those colorful, dramatic depictions of hell as like part of our individual and cultural imaginations like is it is a good thing are people now being good because they want to be good and they're not being scared into it or it's almost comedic tropes now i think of like the simpsons and south park Park. like yeah the devil in hell is always is a it's a funny place because it's Mm -hmm. so ridiculous right yeah yeah it's so yeah i can't figure it out because i'd still want worry about that sort of moral hazard of like then does it make all of our piety nothing you know i still i i I do worry about that um but i think what it does for us certainly is uh it makes real our sort of innate sense of justice and this isn't a good or a bad thing necessarily right it's like any justice system that exists to me seems to be um a faint echo of our just sense of like the cosmic justice Mm -hmm at work in the world, right? It's like, and we we try to get as close to how we imagine the metaphysics of that justice to, to work, right? But one of the downsides of that, we have this like gruesome hell is then we create these gruesome jails, we you know, uh, these gruesome detention centers at, at the border. We, we do all these awful things. Um, and maybe, and somewhere I think in our, in our subconscious life, we're trying to recreate as well as possible this other thing that's yeah. so deeply implanted in our sort of cultural do you think imagination. We get better. Uh, this, I don't know. I don't know if this is a good question, but do we get better or worse at justice on Earth when we, like, as a society, don't think there's going to be justice in the afterlife? Like, do we have to like really punish people now because <laughs> we don't think they're going to hell? I. I don't know. I mean, this is like the heart of the confusion I I felt and tried to convey at the end of the piece. We should be trying for some sense of justice. And I do have a, you know, I do have a a slight twinge in in the back of my mind when I, you know, when I hear about um, universalism, because I'm like, wait, so just never that person just gets to. So universalism, the idea that no one goes to hell, that no one goes to hell. And, you know, um, 
it's like, well, then where is that justice? Where, where, where is it seen in the visible or invisible world? Um, but at the same time, um, the things that I want to see on earth, when I, when I look at prison abolitionists and think that they're doing something good, when I see Sister Prejean getting people off of death row, or, or when I see that, and I think that's a good thing, I wonder then whether my afterlife cosmology should mirror that. Yeah. But there is a part of justice. When we say justice, we do mean in some way a, a pleasure in the downside of justice. So I think that that's like broadly human. But then I think we're told like if you you do these things and so you go to, so it makes a mockery of so much else about the faith. It's like a contract that's been broken or right. breached or something. Right. It's like half of us are over here scared to receive communion without even confessing Mm -hmm. and then you're telling me that like somebody who never even entered the faith is just like oh well god is fine or or somebody that like did something awful and didn't you know for whatever reason never felt any remorse it's it it seems that when so many of our religious notions are built on the sort of mechanisms of like redemption and justification all these things um maybe maybe the idea is that it makes all of that kind of a mockery Right. So, Vincent, you mentioned that, you know, you, you've you've always believed in hell, but in the process of writing this piece and all the research you did for it, was there anything that changed about the idea that you have of hell? Did you learn anything new that kind of changed the thinking you already had? Yeah, I think, you know, along the lines of this conversation, I think that I kind of even though I do I do kind of at toward the end bring up my um some of my skepticism around universalism. I think that, of course, writing this piece made me more of a universalist. Like, you know what I mean? I think I, um, I think I had to admit that in order to like then do the next move, which was the like, okay, but how do I like the world? How do I want the world to believe? And if I like believe in sort of uh, that kingdom come, that I want the world to more and more resemble the world to come then the kind of world I want to see now has to in some way influence my theology or otherwise like, what am I doing? You know? So, but I had to raise that objection before I could kind of, I think make it past it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading the long loneliness at the same time I was uh, writing this. This piece. is Dorothy Day's autobiography. Dorothy Day's autobiography. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I mentioned that a part that really has nothing to do with hell, but it, she was in jail and it was really this kind of jail like state and it sparks this, She's on a hunger strike, right? Uh, she's on a hunger strike. And so, yeah. and, and along with a, a bunch of other female prisoners, right? And she's, and um, they are sort of like deepening into this despair. And what I'm always inspired by with that is that she doesn't go into what my mom would call a pity party with that, right? Like instead, it this this deep moment of almost like dissociation makes her think about the rest of the world. And why is it that everybody, uh, why do the, the poor and the dispossessed get the the hardest time of all people that have experienced what I'm experiencing now, but for a lifetime, right? Like what, what is that? Um, and it just, it reminded me of how the hell, uh, how the hell on earth can just kind of ripple out and out and outward and point toward the spiritual, right? This is before her conversion when she has this 
um, kind of almost revelation, right? But um, what struck me about that is so you I forget who you're quoting when you say it um, that like someone defines hell as like being locked from the inside, like you, C.S. Lewis. You yeah, it's you only you can put yourself in hell because you are choosing actively to turn away from God, um, and just like the contrast of that that being hell in the afterlife and then like jail on earth being it's the opposite <laughs> you can't walk out it turns yeah. out yeah. yeah turns out you can't do that yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of dropping dorothy day into a the new yorker do you feel like you have to play your cards close to your chest when you're writing for a secular audience in terms of your religious sort of commitments um no and and that's a very that's a great thing that's it's, i've been very happy to be able to write about whatever i want to um but there is also like you know a part of my own religious experience that is like is is very ambivalent. I'm always like one hand and the other, and like uh, I always feel worried. You know, it's like if I haven't like really thought about the incarnation for a long time, I'm like, am I sure I still believe in that? Like, what does it mean? Like, I get they're like individual truth claims. I get like, what? But what does that mean? It, like, I'm I'm very like fretful over my faith. I just like. Uh, um and so i often think that if i sort of that that fundamental attitude can be a key like a compositional key if that every section of a piece can kind of be like one hand and the other i think it can bring the audience along and to your point about like playing it close to my chest i don't i'm not playing the like i'm not like bishop baron right i'm not like some great evangelizer because like that's not who i am i'm still trying mm -hmm. to convince myself of stuff yeah and so therefore that can be my persona as writer as well, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so we do have one last question for you. I know you already said you're universalist, so you want everyone to be up yeah. in heaven and a saint, but you have to choose <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Who would it be? Uh, a saint, Catholic or not, living or not? Yeah, well, we're talking about Dorothy Day, and I feel mm -hmm. like she's on her way. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I would, I would... I would make my vote. Can we? Back. Can you? Can we make you choose another one? Because she's already. She's already. Been she's been canonized by everybody. Okay. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, has anybody mentioned Thea Bowman? I've been watching no. her. No. Her That's sainthood case very closely. So why would you canonize Thea Bowman? Well, because I do think. Well, wonderful. Uh, first of all, she just seems to fit the description. She just seems to have devoted herself. To God in this very beautiful and wonderful way. I was, I never, she, you know, she's an African American sister oh, in the U United yes. States who, yeah, I can. Um, uh, really promoted the sort of, uh, I think the U.S. Catholic Church has, but it's been tough in terms of uh, diversity, especially you know, black. I grew up in Chicago where there are a lot of there were a lot of black Catholics, but I didn't realize that that was like a sort of minority thing until later on. Um, and then I, I always loved the stories of her just like breaking into song all the time when she would in the middle of her presentations and speeches. Um, that to me is just like such a an obvious like sign of the overflow that happens to the heart, right? Um, that thing that I wish I could get to, right? It's like oh, it's like oh, yeah. it's not. Um, so maybe her That's Saint Sister Thea Bowman. It's a good one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Vincent, where can people find your work? Uh, they can find it. At the New Yorker, mm -hmm. um, most just about all of it is there. <laughs> um, I'm sh there's there's some page that like my contributor page, content, uh, you know, it has my archives on it. Yep. And you know, I'm on Twitter. V uh, was it V Cunningham? 
Maybe that's it. Yeah. 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 We're all pretending like we don't know. We're just like, yeah, we think it's becoming him. But yeah, it is. <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much for coming yeah, on. Thank this you for was, joining this us. This is great. Appreciate yeah. it. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? Did you know that we have a Facebook group for listeners and friends of Jesuitical? I did. It's really great. (laughs) So in all all seriousness, this is a place where we've been getting into a lot of really good discussions. A couple SOT topics have come from this. We get ideas for interview guests. And it's a place where we can sort of share our consolations and desolations throughout the week, too. So if you haven't checked that out yet, you absolutely should. Hit us up at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a consolation this week. Um, My sister and I, ever since I've moved out, we've tried to be more proactive about our sister time. So my sister came up with sister dates where every month we meet up, um, whether Uh it's in my apartment or someplace in the city. So we had our uh, February sister date yesterday. Um, And she's at a place where she's kind of thinking about where she's going to go professionally. And she's talking about maybe pursuing um, a degree in psychology. She sees it as a way to help students of color some more. She's been a teacher for a few years, and she thinks that helping these communities deal with the mental health issues that she sees in the classroom is like the next, her calling. Um, And she had this one line where she said, you know, I want to teach my students how to love themselves and how to love others because the way to change the world is through radical love. And my sister is not, a Christian at all. She is pretty much agnostic. So even hearing her, if she finds out that I she's my consolation this week, she will just completely shun <laughs> that. Um, but seeing her in that moment, it was just such a consolation to see someone who doesn't really, despite having the same upbringing as me, she doesn't consider herself Catholic, but she so embodies the Catholic ideal that I want to strive for. And she's not someone who's, you know, doing this for social media or like trying to build a brand, which there's nothing wrong because that's something I'm doing. She's just so authentic and such such a depiction of God for me. And just talking to her was just such a reward this week. So my sister Pam is my consolation. Man, transforming the world through radical love. That sounds like straight up like Oscar Romero stuff right? or something. I'm like, I can't believe it. She's so Catholic and she doesn't even realize it. Sneaky <laughs> Catholic. Mm-hmm. But- love, love sister dates. <laughs> what do you have, Ashley? Uh, I have a desolation this week. Um, so as I've mentioned on the podcast before, my mom worked with uh, the former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Um, so when the news of his laicization broke um on saturday uh one of my cousins who he lives in south carolina and he's not catholic but he has a lot of um anger towards the church which he often expresses towards me and asks me like how i can possibly um be involved in a church that has hurt so many people he texted me just to like see how i was taking the news um and it triggered this conversation um about not connected to mccarrick but ways that um abuse and trauma have have shaped our own family um, and the way that that gets passed down from generation to generation. Um, And I just was left feeling pretty hopeless after talking to him. Um, There are people who we've lost who, like, I will never be able to personally, like, talk to and see how I can help them or 
hear about their pain. Um, and yet at the same time, I know that they've passed on pain to other people. And I just see that in my family and I see it in our church. Um, and so in that, I'm not going to, I know I won't stay in that space, but this news kind of triggered me to not really, not really see God working, more seeing trauma working through generations um, and the way that people mm. get hurt that way. So that was, that was rough. That's really hard. I'm yeah. sorry. What do you have, Zach? I also have a desolation and uh, it's sort of related to the the news that you were talking about, Ashley, but also just this this week uh, with the sex abuse summit at the Vatican happening and there are different stories breaking and different news outlets. It, I was feeling sort of the relentlessness of the news more than usual this week. And, and it left me feeling this place of, I don't know, I don't want to say hopelessness, uh, but I, it feels more like laziness and apathy. Like I'm trying to will myself to care about these things and I, and I just can't. And I know that Jesus would want me to hope for the best in our church, right? And so, and I'm trying to figure out where this desolation is hitting me exactly. So I was talking with Father Eric about it, and we've sort of like pinned it down to, this is really like hitting me professionally this with this week. It's not, I have a lot of great faith communities outside of work where I can lean on for uh, spiritual support and all kinds of other things. But professionally, when I'm doing this week, it's been really, really tough. And I don't know that it's like existentially tough. I'm not having a vocations crisis or anything. But by talking to Father Eric and sort of figuring that out, I'm reminded of, okay, where do I need to look? Who do I need to lean on in times like this when it's really hard? And, and, and it's those other faith communities. It's you guys. It's our Jesuitical community. And I think that's what I'm going to be looking to this week um, as I'm looking for hope. Yeah. We're here for you. We are. Thank you. All right. Take us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by your hosts. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Elena Smith. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.